This episode has been brought to you in part by the Toronto Heschel School. You are invited to attend their open house on November 10th to discover what makes Heschel special. Visit torontoheschel.org for more details. That's Toronto, H-E-S-C-H-E-L dot org. This is Bonjour Chai, the G'day Jewish Mite edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we will be talking about the ins and outs of organ donation. What is the Jewish approach? Where do we stand as a community in Canada? What we can all do with regards to organ donation? We'll talk to Robbie Berman of the Halachic Organ Donor Society, as well as someone who is currently waiting for a kidney. But first, Alana, David, you both write professionally. What's your relationship to plagiarism? I feel like I was a really good student in terms of, I mean, grades, sure, but um, I, I was a goody two-shoes, and I probably tried really hard not to plagiarize when I was younger and in high school. I think the last thing I was ever accused of plagiarizing would have been like a great nine essay about uh, Holden Caulfield. Um, the teacher sat us all down and sort of said, I know some Did of you. Spark notes. No, I, I actually was honest. I, I, I did the work. I was a very diligent student like yourself. Oh, so you got accused of it, but it was, it was a false alarm. I, believe, I, I panicked. I said, oh my God, did I, did I inadvertently plagiarize something? Did I hear something that someone else mentioned? Did my mom say something about Holden Caulfield? Um, and she, she, she stared us all down in, in Bialik and sort of said, someone's going to come forward right now and admit that they plagiarized their essay or else. And we all panicked. And I think I was like, I, I, I use the word platonic. I don't think I've ever said that word before. Maybe that was plagiarism. And I got really nervous, but I- It's I, actually reminding me of the feeling of, of being a high school student because when you had to write essays that were more factual, I remember trying to find all the synonyms so that I wouldn't be plagiarizing because sometimes it just the information is what it is and you don't want to take it and copy paste it from a book, but like that's what you have to write about, you know? What about you, Abby? So we're talking about individual, individual words yeah. here. So the reason why I brought it up is because there's an article that came out in the Australian Jewish News last week that told this bonkers story about a certain Rabbi Gersh Lazaro who was caught plagiarizing many of his sermons and published writings from other That's rabbis. That's so wild. Now, the Canadian hook here is that the one named rabbi that it stated in the article is my friend and colleague, Rabbi Eric Grossman, who is at the Akiva School here in Montreal. And apparently this guy was like, oh, you know what? Let's plagiarize from somebody halfway across the world because nobody will ever figure this out. Um, and to, until they, until did, they but did, without thinking about the fact that the internet exists. So, right? so like, how did they yeah. find out in the first place that this rabbi was plagiarizing so, from across the world? So the article stated only that people started getting suspicious because he was using words like fall instead of what they use in Australia, which is autumn. And, you know, that there was other right. like words that weren't being, that, that didn't make sense. And then they started plugging this stuff in and started realizing that he was taking like episodes that were taking place in Central Park and he would just recast them as a taking place in a park near him with his family and things like that. And then they started and then they pushed, you know, they once somebody suspected something, the rest just, you know, unveiled it like yeah. unraveled and everything just came out yeah to me the most unethical part of this whole situation and then they, they talk about this in the article is that there were some personal anecdotes about real people and and experiences that they had and he just took the stories and then made up different names or used people in his own life do you think he was just overworked and exhausted and, and needed something like within last minute and he was just a procrastinator but all all the time why are you a rabbi then yeah i mean this part is part of the job abby we need to know have you ever plagiarized anything rabbi abby I, well, so 
rabbis do not come up. Here's a big secret. Rabbis oh. do not come up with every single word of everything that they write originally as everything all the time, right? Um, the two main places where this happens, and there are huge caveats with what I'm about to say because this has to be done ethically and properly, mm-hmm. is, for example, let's say you're giving a class, right? You may hand out a source sheet um, with some of the sources that you want to talk about. Many people, especially now with the advent of Safaria as having changed the way that many people think about Jewish learning, there are thousands of source sheets available. And nobody expects you to have put together your own source sheet. Many times rabbis are borrowing source sheets from each other or finding one on Safaria. The caveat to that is that you put on there, this source sheet was compiled by Rabbi X. I'm teaching it. I'm, right. I'm a great you educator. Credit. I don't, you credit. I, it's like putting together Footnotes. a textbook. You don't expect, you're not expecting to put a textbook together every time you're teaching a class. You buy a professionally made textbook. Sometimes Sometimes you buy a textbook of a source sheet and you give a class based on that. But you tell people, I didn't put together this source sheet. Or you say, I heard this class and this lecture from somebody else. I would like to tell it to you today so that the the ideas are not your own. Plenty of rabbis use plenty of ideas that they've heard from plenty of other rabbis or other non-rabbis in their sermons. But then they say, I heard this idea from Rabbi X. Or I heard this story from Rabbi X instead of casting it in your own light. Um, There there used to be a practice. So this rabbi gave no props. Nothing, nothing. Um, this, there's also the practice of like, for example, um, stock sermons, right? Where, mm. um, if you're giving a eulogy and it's less of a practice today, um, because plenty of people want things more personal. But if you look, especially in the old rabbi manuals of the days of yore, and I like collecting old rabbi manuals, you'll find like these standard one page, you know, sermons for an unveiling or for a funeral or for a bar mitzvah. Right. And they'll give you like sermon A, sermon B and sermon C. And they're basically written out sermons that people can do, but people weren't, first of all, the internet didn't exist. So it was very easy to like, just have that. But people also just didn't necessarily rely on those and weren't expecting rabbis to be as completely original. Um, And rabbis, I I assume, were also, um, you know, either using those when they were really, you know, strapped for time or they would use them as jumping off points for their own ideas and own ways to move forward. Um, But taking a sermon and just repeating it without telling somebody that somebody else wrote the sermon is, uh, yeah, it's that's not a good thing. How did that make you feel when you actually, when you heard about this story? Because you're a rabbi, what what was going on for you and, you know, as you were reading? (sighs) Again, it, it's a bonker story. I, I will admit that there are rabbis that actually do this stuff. I mean, I've seen rabbis give classes without giving attribution uh, or educators. But I mean, that again, that's not exclusive to rabbis. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't know, but I don't think I've ever heard of a rabbi that was uh, plagiarizing sermons word for word or major section for major section it's without that. It's kind of funny. It's, it's, it's like terrible, but, but I mean, it's kind of funny. It is. Like, how do you guys feel like if you went to a play? And you found out a year later that the uh, the author just plagiarized this from like some well, high school B level something or other. Big... But because they were a famous author, they were like, "Oh, well, that's a great people, piece." People people say that Shakespeare maybe didn't write some of that his happens plays. All the time. That's a big thing in the theater community. You know? Yeah, but nobody takes issue with Shakespeare not writing any of his plays. How would we feel today if like a modern playwright just sort of said, "I I I stole this from another play or I stole this from a book?" Right. Well, it reminds me of I remember back in like the early two thousands, there was a lot of scandal around um, musicians lip-syncing to music that they weren't actually singing. I don't know if you remember any of those stories. I was quite young. Millie, Millie Vanilli? There was, there was a bunch of them, and then there was like a... Ashley Simpson on well, SNL. Well, Ashley Simpson yeah, I remember, sure. but I remember when I was even younger, there was some band, and they hadn't even written any of their music. They were stealing it from some other band across the world. Millie Vanilli. Okay, it was probably that. Millie I was Vanilli. a kid. I don't remember. I just remember that, my that mom picking me up time. and telling me this story after I came home from elementary school. Don't know why that's a memory I've retained, but 
What year was that in elementary school? I graduated in 2005, so sometime before then. Oh, so this is not that. This was in the early 90s. Well, I was alive in the early 90s. 89, 90. Anyway. But you weren't hearing uh, this story in the early 90s. Well, I was born in 93, so. 1990. Yeah. (laughs) Infant me. Do you think this is just a greater problem in our society where we've just gotten. Go ahead. Where we've just gotten so lazy now, where we just pull things, I mean, I think the whether we're rabbis true. or musicians? I think I think it's harder to, to plagiarize nowadays because even though there is a plethora of data and information and wisdom on the internet, it's so much easier to figure out whether somebody is plagiarizing or not. Yeah, it's, it's the moral decline of our civilization. Don't copy things from the internet. Like this is just... It seems basic. He could have gotten a ghostwriter. Yeah, you gotta pay the guy, and you gotta like, and it takes time and energy, and then somebody's in on it. Remember, well, what's gonna two happen people now? know about it. Is this guy gonna get he's sued? On, I don't know. If, what's happening? The is, article is says be he's on medical leave. Uh, I suspect he maybe he wasn't well. I don't know what the story is. I don't want to cast aspersions. Um, there's only one article that's okay. out there. When I remember speaking to my friend uh, Eric about this, he went and said he, he, he gets he gets a call from Australia where the synagogue had to like, or somebody in the synagogue had to inform him of this. And then, you know, uh, a week or two later, I don't remember, sometime after, a friend of his then calls him and says, you know, you're in the news. Like he didn't think that it would become a media story. And then wow. like it became a media story. And then his name gets, you know, put up in this, you know, as a, as a news story. So that's like kind of crazy. I mean, it's great for him in some way. Like he got the upper hand in the situation. People are like, wow, your sermons were so good. But somebody this wants rabbi to rabbi wanted to steal them. It's like the, the uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery. That's what my grade six teacher used to tell me when ki- other kids would copy what I was doing. It's my art project. Oh, so you've been plagiarized. Is that why you're so bitter? Oh, yeah, definitely. And people used to like look over to see what I, what I was writing on tests and things. I, I've been there. Okay. Would you forgive this rabbi if you were part of their congregation? Would you come back and sort of say, it's okay, you made a mistake, we're willing to listen to oh, you God. again? I don't know if I... I feel really weird going to that shul if I knew my rabbi had no <laughs> words of wisdom of his own. It's not, it wouldn't feel so meaningful to me anymore, personally. I mean, he could, he could do a great speech on, you know, apologizing and not plagiarizing. Right. That could be his Well, like, he's more first, like an actor saying one. a script than a rabbi giving his own sermon. Yeah, we pay tons of money point, to hear it? actors uh, say scripts, don't we? Uh, sometimes less, less than deserved, I would say. <laughs> and tons of money. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, let's take um, a step back here. <laughs> anyways, well, some, or, some actors get, get paid That's tons true. of money. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it depends on the nature of the uh, return or repentance or tshuva that this person had and I th- uh, whether he is believed to have sincerely repented or not. And that's an open question. I'm not going to answer that until I know what this person is trying to yeah. do. I would to love, return or to, I would love to hear this. what our listeners think. Definitely reach out and, and let us know yes. in the comments. I would love to hear. Have you plagiarized? Are you from Australia? And are you a member of this congregation? We'd love to hear from you and hear your uh, thoughts about this. Um, reach out to us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Bonjour at the cjn.ca for all your comments and questions. You can also email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to uh, give us some book recommendations. We're still collecting some book recommendations for the month of November, where we will uh, try to spend our first segment uh, looking at different uh, books, Canadian books, Jewish books, Canadian Jewish books, uh, new, old. Uh, what are your classics? What are your favorites? So yes, reach out to us, and uh, we will hopefully have some great book recommendations starting next week so that uh, November you will have, if you are choosing to join up with us uh, to read along, uh, you'll know to read in advance. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Actually, Elu, 
they do wonderful stuff. I just picked up this bangle um, for my wife. Uh, I don't know if you see it. It's a really cool shape. Um, you know, it's got a circle in the middle. It's got vaguely triangular. It's got this nice beaten um, feeling about it. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to have you guys read that in depth um, really up close because of uh, our webcams and stuff. But can you, I don't know if you can read, no. but there's some writing across the end over there. Yeah, I can see that there's something there's engraved, something engraved. I can't see what it um, is. It says the, on there. The one ring to rule them all. No, but it does say, nevertheless, she persisted. Um, and this is the oh, work of a, of a jeweler called Dana Bronfman. And uh, she uh, takes these wonderful sayings and engraves them onto her jewelry. Has a really modern, uh, rustic, I don't know how to describe the sensibility of this, but I really liked it's kind it. kind of like and, bron uh, bronze or goldish looking. Yeah. It's hard for kind me to of. see. Um, but it's nice. Yeah, we it's can like check it's, it out. It's, it's not like a plain circle. Yep. It, it has dimension. So um, this is one of the many lines that they have at Atelier Lou. Um, Dana Bronfman is uh, a wonderful jeweler, uh, New York-based, uh, and she does this stuff. You should check it out. I like the fact that there is meaning infused into the jewelry instead of just a visual um, beauty attached to it. Where can we uh, get uh, Atelier Lou's uh, selection? Great question, Avi. You can go on the website atelierlou.com and if you are a Bonjour High listener, you can use the code BON18 at checkout and get 10% off your order. Now, when you say Lou, is it L-O-O or different way of spelling? Because I've always wondered as a listener. L-O-U. That's a good question. It's A-T-E-L-I-E-R, atelier, the French word, L-O-U. Because not everyone listening is from Quebec. This is true. This is true. The donating of organs, both from live donors, as in the case of kidney donation, or after death for many other organs, is the source of much discussion and debate within the Jewish community. We initially decided to cover this story uh, because uh, David came to us and we'd asked him and said, listen, what are some of the stories that you'd like to cover? And uh, David said uh, he'd like to cover organ donation. David, why did you want to cover organ donation within the Jewish community? Well, uh, last week I celebrated my 23rd birthday, or rather re-birthday, of my liver. Uh, when I was 11 years old, I received a liver transplant at the Montreal Children's Hospital. Uh, it's been a part of me for my entire life in terms of adjustments to my life, how things change when you receive an organ donation, the medication you're on, a lot of the uncertainty itself. Uh, I was very curious uh, what Orthodox Jews and, and um, non-Orthodox Jews have to say about organ donation, what has been going on in the past 20 years. I was curious. I remember when I was waiting for an organ donation, I was very sick in the hospital. My father called around to a bunch of different rabbis to seek their advice and opinion on this subject matter. And really the end of the day, they all sort of said, if it's to save a life, it trumps everything. Um, and with that, we went ahead and we, uh, I was very lucky within three weeks, I was put at the top of the list of the organ donation list in Canada. And I received a, uh, a liver from a 67-year-old gentleman from Alberta. That's really great. Amazing. Um, we are going to hear uh, from a person who actually is on a waiting list. So uh, there's a woman, Elena Solomon, who is actively searching for a kidney. Uh, we are going to hear from her shortly. Um, as we were recording, we actually heard about a second case of an individual in Waterloo who is also looking for one, and we'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Um, but first, with us to talk about Judaism and organ donation in general is Robbie Berman, who is the founder and director of the Halachic Organ Donor Society. Robbie, welcome to the program. How are you? Great. How are you? Great. Great. Good. Thanks for inviting me. 
why don't you tell us about um, the Halachic Organ Donor Society in general, um, what got you uh, going to make this happen? And I, I, I get emails from you all the time, so I know that this is like a very big cause for, your, for you. Uh, personally, you seem to be donating hundreds and hundreds of hours of volunteer on this program. Uh, tell us about the Halachic Organ Donor Society. So it's an organization that's meant to try to educate Jews about the halachic and medical issues surrounding organ donation. Jews have one of the worst organ donor registration rates in the world. New York State has the worst organ donor uh, registration rate, partly according to the New York Times and the New York Organ Donor Network because of the Jewish population there. Jews, and I'm talking about all Jews, including secular Jews, tend not to donate. Most Jews in the world are secular, but they refuse to donate for religious reasons. In other words, you'll have a Jew who does not observe any part of halacha, any part of Judaism, any part of Torah, but when it comes to donating organs and they're asked to donate, they say, no, Jews don't do that. We won't do it. It's against our religion. So I decided to start an organization 20 years ago that could try to maybe re-educate Jews and try to show them that halacha, Jewish law supports organ donation. There is a debate about brain death, which was organs are taken. Yeah, I'd love to hear and, more about that, actually. I was doing some research to to prepare for this episode. I, I know very little about this topic and a lot of things about brain death were popping up. Can you explain what that means to us? Yeah, so most people don't understand what brain death means and really... When we use the term, we use it incorrectly. We should never say the term brain death. Doctors make a mistake. Journalists make a mistake. We should, we should always say brain dead with a beating heart. That's what we mean. A weird situation where you're in the hospital, you're on a ventilator, your brain dies, but your heart doesn't know enough to stop beating because it's still getting oxygen from the machine. I mean, brain death is not a new phenomenon. We bury people in cemeteries because their brain has died. So brain death is not a new concept, although it sounds like it is. It's brain death with a beating heart that is a new concept that people try to find it hard to wrap their heads around, no pun intended, uh, in order for them to understand that a person, a human being, an organism can be dead while the organs can remain alive. And that's like a new phenomenon that's only been around since the 1950s. So you are or not allowed to have uh, an organ donated from someone who is brain dead, according to halacha. I mean, I know according to halacha, you've debunked all of it, but when people are faced with, with this situation, what is the misconception that they have around uh, brain death? Transplant? The misconception, well, most people don't have any misconception. They just have a superstitious knee-jerk reaction to saying no to organ donation. They have no idea why. Interesting. Uh, in fact, those, those people who are educated, Orthodox Jews are more likely to donate organs because they, uh, they, they're educated about it. They know what the issues are. You know, so, but, but for those people who are educated and still say no to organ donation, it's because they view brain dead with a beating heart as someone who, who is alive, right? They view a beating heart as a sign of human life and no rabbi is going to allow you to donate organs of a person who's uh, who's alive because then you're killing the person. So that's why there are many prestigious, well-known halachic rabbinic decisors that say no to organ donation. Their, my problem with them is that if you wanna reject brain death, I mean, modern medicine understands brain death with a beating heart to be death. Um, but, and if you wanna reject that, that's your right. And they're, they're, they, de- you know, they try to find sources in the Talmud for that, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But then they should forbid their congregation from taking organs from people, right? Because then you're asking doctors to murder, in their eyes, to murder other people to give them organs. So let's be consistent. You want to say no, you will not donate. Fine, don't donate and don't take. But right. it seems that some people don't seem some don't seem to have a problem with that. Right. And so the whole idea of debunking it is around pikuch nefesh. Is that right? Preserving life. Well, no. This or is more complex to, than that. No, this issue has nothing. The brain death issue doesn't. Oh, do I don't with... mean the brain death issue. I mean, generally, um, why we are all allowed as Jews halakhically. Right. I mean, there are certain uh, prohibitions concerning a uh, cadaver. You're not allowed to get benefit from a cadaver, meaning you can't sell a cadaver to a medical school. 
uh, make money from it. You're not allowed to delay burial of a cadaver, and you're not a, not allowed to uh, willy-nilly destroy a cadaver. Those are three biblical uh, prohibitions. But in the face of uh, saving a life, you're allowed to override almost every single commandment of the Torah. So when someone says, oh, Jews are not allowed to eat pork, that's right. not true. Jews are allowed to eat pork if it can save their life. Jews are allowed yeah. to drive on the Sabbath if it can save a life. And so too, Jews are allowed to violate the prohibitions of a cadaver if it can save a life. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is whether or not the person is actually dead, because you're not allowed to kill mm. one person to save another person. So that's that's the issue. If the person is really alive, uh, then you would be killing him. So that's the debate, the brain mm. death debate. What I'm curious about, because um, first of all, two things. First of all, have you, what is the kind of pushback that you, you have these people tell you that, yeah, we'll gladly take organs, but we're not willing to like give any? I, I, I'm just really... horrified to say, I'm hard. it depends how many people you have listened to this podcast. We got it's not, a quite, it, a few, it, quite a big number. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say it because it's just horrific. But some of them have said to me, well, we're not doing the murdering. The doctors are doing the murdering. So what do we care if the doctors are doing the murdering? Wow, that's, that's uh, some of them has say, on so many levels. Oh, yeah. And there's another thing saying, oh, well, you know, if there are most of the majority of people in the country are non-Jews and they want to give their organs. So what do we care if we have the doctors murder the non-Jews? I mean, like just horrific stuff, just horrific stuff. Would but, they take it Would they? with. And again, I this is all offensive, but I'm, I'm going to dig one step further. Would they be willing to take an organ from a from a Jewish individual? Where they actually yeah. will put their money well, where their that, mouth is and say, we're not going to take an organ from a Jewish person. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's some people who are a little bit more principled and say, oh, I won't take it if it comes from a Jew. But uh, but I don't know. I mean, the whole, to go down that rabbit hole is just not a pleasant thing to do. Now, one of the uh, one of the things that HOTS also does is with living uh, organ donations with kidneys and promotes discussions around that. And uh, I find that within the uh, ultra-Orthodox and the Haredi community that there is much more discussion. There's so much promotion. There was a famous uh, This American Life episode about this Haredi woman who uh, donated a kidney and then convinced many other Hasidim to donate kidneys. Um, is Do you think that there's some relationship between the one and the other in that there is this recognition, well, if we can't donate organs, Right, because we don't believe in that for whatever misguided reason. At least we can donate kidneys and other organs that can be given as uh, living uh, organ donations. So, just to set the record straight, so we did do in the beginning living kidney donation. We do not do that in the, anymore. We haven't done it in years. Okay. Uh, there are organizations like Renewal in New York and like um, and, and Toronto, uh, Matan yeah. Chaim in uh, in uh, in Israel. Israel has, by the way, the highest rate of living kidney donation to alt- altruistically. I don't mean a guy donating to his father or siblings, but I mean, clearly walking to the hospital saying, don't take my kidney, save a human life. And that life could be Palestinian. So Israel is the highest organ donor registration, organ donor rate from a living kidney donor. Whether it's connected, whether they, it could be, um, it could be that's the reason they say we can't donate when we're dead. So let's donate at least when we're alive. Um, It could be, I mean, there's a great sense of helping people. There's a great sense. uh, Most of the people donate are like uh, religious Zionists, actually. Interesting. I'm wondering, right now we're having a lot of conversations in North America about switching from an opt-in to an opt-out kind of procedure right now. Nova Scotia is the first province to actually do something. Well, I- I'm curious what your uh, beliefs are. This is an audio medium. Robbie is giving his <laughs> thumbs down many, many times. So, yeah, I'm not in favor of uh, opt-out. I've been interviewed many times about this. I'm in favor of opt-out if it works. I don't believe it works. And I believe people are not looking at the statistics appropriately. They're not looking at the base rates uh, opt out. Look, let, let, let's do like a, a thought experiment. Okay. We go to the hospital, your brother, it was in a car accident. He had brain damage. They put him on a ventilator after he was on the ventilator, his brain died. So now his heart doesn't stop beating because it's getting the oxygen artificially and the 
heart will continue to beat for another few days before it stops. The transplant, transplant coordinator comes along and says, hey, would you like to donate organs? So the person says, the family says, well, I feel uncomfortable about it, either because I'm a Jew or whatever. I feel uncomfortable. Then they open his wallet and they find an organ donor card. He opted in. He has a card. Most people, in 99% of all cases, will say, oh, he had a card? Okay. We will honor his last wish and donate his organs. Now let's do the other part of this thought experiment. You're going to the hospital, your brother's brain dead, and they say, would you like to donate his organs? And you say no. And they say, well, he never opted out. He, he, he never opted out, which means that he wanted to be an organ donor. And they say, well, I know my brother. He was a lazy bastard. I'm not, I, you know, I don't, I don't care that he didn't opt out. He didn't want to be an organ donor. And that, and, and, or, or I'm suspicious of the medical establishment. And I see that you guys control the list of the opt out. And I think you're hiding it from me. I think my brother did opt out and you're not telling it to me. So if you just, in the thought experiment alone, you can see why it wouldn't work. I'm not in favor of the opt-out situation. That's trying to coerce people to become organ donors. I'm in favor of education and not legislation. I think that's the way to go. This is a very sensitive issue. There are a lot of components here, emotional components, uh, religious components. You don't want to start forcing it down people's throats and saying, oh, if you don't opt out, we're going to take the organs. And they don't take the organs against the families. Well, anyway, they ask the family. So the family could reject it. I said, I don't care. My brother didn't opt out. He never got around to it. He just didn't, he, would do it. he didn't see the notice. He didn't see the advertisement in the newspaper to opt out. So I'm, I'm against it. Could it be part of a nudge in a sense where we're talking about we have one of the worst organ donation rates in the industrialized world here in Canada. And if we nudge people to sort of say you are presumed to be donating your organs if and when you do die tragically or at an old age, right now we could actually increase the amount of organ donation we have and save up to you know eight lives per individual rather than just sort of saying, oh, that he never talked about it in his family. We never discussed it. And right now we're dealing with a tragedy. We can't even think about organ donation. I, I mean, if you take a look at the numbers, take a look at the numbers. I think Wales has started in England with Wales and the numbers haven't gone up. All the countries that they say, look at Spain, Spain has opt out. So the numbers are up. Well, look at their opt in before they were opt out. They were opt in. Spain had the highest numbers in the world for organ donations. It went from like 75 to 80% to 90%. So great. So it only added 10%. It doesn't work. And by the way, what works in one country doesn't work in another country. There are different cultures and different concerns. Most people in America, most people in Israel are very suspicious of the government taking away their rights, taking things, take higher taxes. They're taking my money. They're taking away my right to own a gun. They're taking away this and that. And now all of a sudden you want to take my organs because I didn't opt out? No. And there'll be a pushback. I think it's bad, bad public policy. Am, am, I, am, I, am I being too ambiguous there? Well, no, I just think I look at it. You say it's just 10, it's 10%, but 10% will save many people's lives. And right now no, we are not no, doing well no, at all. No, 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 it only saved people's lives in Spain. There was a 10% bump in Spain, but that doesn't mean it's going to work in other countries and you might have a backlash. And I think they tried it in, in London, in England and it didn't work. It didn't increase. It's a backlash. It's bad public policy. In my opinion, things- I look, look, if it works, I'm in favor of it. I just don't think it works. And when people look at the numbers, they forget to look at the base rates. They'll point to countries and say, look at all the organ donation going on in this country because they have opt-out. Well, what was their base rate of organ donation before opt-out? And you see it was very high. You don't see a country that had very low organ donation. All of a sudden, they adopt opt-out, and it's a miracle. Hallelujah. And now people are donating organs. You don't see that happening. What do you think um, can be done more and better within the Jewish community? Uh, and I know that that's you know what you do all the day. So I'm asking you, like, what's on the horizon? What's the future? What's the next big thing for the Halachic Organ Donor Society? Well, we're currently making another. We made a movie about 12 years ago explaining the finality of brain death because research shows that the better a family that understands the finality of brain death, the more likely they are to consider organ donation for obvious reasons. A lot of people you watch these videos on YouTube or 
Um, you know, and you see these people saying, oh, I woke up from brain death and no one's ever woken up in the history of brain death. I won't go into the reasons why, but medically it's impossible. Your brain begins to melt and undergoes a process called lysis. But people talk about these stories all the time and rumors go around and urban myths and legends. So um, we made a video. The video went viral. Hundreds of thousands of people watched it. We got calls from the Islamic regime of Pakistan for them to do a version in Paki for them. And we did in Pakistan, Urdu, I think it was. And then um, we did one for, we're now doing, so anyway, we're doing a new video using whiteboard animation. We did the English version and now we're doing Hebrew, Arabic, and Hindi. And that's going to be coming out in the next, I think, two, three weeks. Um, and we have other things that we have down the pipeline, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Uh, we're probably going to be taking the organization in a slightly different direction and make us an end-of-life organization in general and just organization being one of those options. There are a lot of end-of-life organizations out there that are typically very right-wing and they've kind of lost perspective of the big picture. So you call them up and say, hey, my father is 94 years old. He's got terminal cancer in horrific pain. His body is shutting down. His fingers are black with necrosis. They want to amputate his leg. What should we do? And the organization says, put him on a ventilator. Keep that heart pumping. And you have, you have to let the body take, uh, you know, we're not of that opinion. So we're going to become more of an end of life organization going forward. And organization will just be one of those options. That's interesting that you bring that up that the, um, you know, because so much of what we're, we spend so much money on end of life care to prolong life by a week or two, maybe. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if that wasn't happening, not only would we be saving that money, we'd be saving lives at the same time. So it's a double edged, um, you know, beneficiary uh, uh, benefit uh, to the when community at large. When you're keeping a cadaver with a beating heart in the hospital, and that's what a brain dead beating heart patient is, a cadaver mm -hmm. with a beating heart, you're taking away money from the government money that could be used to cancer research. You're taking away the time of the medical staff, of the nurses. You're taking away a bed. You're taking away a ventilator. These are resources that are needed. This yeah. is money and time that is needed. And you're causing uh, a nurse that has 10 patients to take care of in a shift. Now she's got to take care of 13 patients. Three of them are actually medically dead. Their brain is dead and their heart's just pumping because it doesn't know that the brain has died for another few days or another few weeks. There's so a, yeah, there is a cost. There there's is a, a famous cost. article that came out a little while ago by uh, Zeke Emanuel, who was a famous bioethicist in the US, um, who talked about that. And he he famously said, once I pass 75, don't give me anything more strong, stronger than aspirin, by which he meant, <laughs> you know, like whatever. But like he, he got it and he understood that. So I highly encourage everybody to read that article. I wrote the same uh, thing, but I, I wrote morphine instead of aspirin. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> one last thing. Um, I, I am a card carrying member right there since, wow. what is it, 2008. I'm part of the rabbinic mm -hmm. uh, team here. Um, wow. What can you tell us about the card and how people can get it and how it actually works? Like, give us your number one success story of how this card actually saved lives. Um, so we had a, a family, an Iranian family, a Persian family that wasn't observant. They went to shul twice a year in Rosh Hashanah Kippur to a reform synagogue. And um, the brother had a, a stroke. They rushed him to the hospital. They put him on a ventilator, helped him breathe. And it was too late. A few hours later, his brain swole, got swollen, blocked the blood flow no oxygen to the brain, the brain died, but he's on a ventilator, right? So the transplant coordinator comes in and speaks to the brother. The brother, by the way, is a physician and says, will you donate his organs? He said, no, we're Jewish. We don't do that. And she says, well, you're not, you're not Orthodox or conservative, right? He goes, no, we're not even barely reformed. We just go to a shul twice a year. So she calls up, the transplant coordinator calls up the rabbi of the shul. The rabbi of the shul comes to the hospital and the rabbi of the shul says, you know, donate his organs. It's the right thing to do, the reform rabbi. And he says, no, we're Jews, real traditional Jews, real Jews with beards. Don't do this. We're not going to donate organs. And then they opened his wallet and they found inside a card from the Halachic Organ Donor Society. And the brother, who was a physician, was shocked. He called me up. I was in Israel at like three in the morning. 
And he woke me up and he said, who are you guys? You guys aren't really Orthodox. You, you, you know, Jew. I said, well, go to our website. You'll see hundreds of rabbis with beers and black hats that have our organ donor card. We're pretty, we're pretty from. There are rabbis who are against it, but there are rabbis before it. And your brother choose to be a part of it. Your brother, if you do not donate his organs, you're going against the wishes of your brother. And there are major halakhic opinions, such as Ramosha Feinstein, uh, Rav uh, Mordechai Yahu. Rabbi Yosef, the chief rabbi of Israel, that accept brain death as a lucky death and support organ donation. And you're going against your brother's last wishes. And uh, they called me back an hour later, said, okay, we'll do it. And he saved, he wasn't able to save eight lives. They saved five lives with their brother's donation. Yeah. So yes, go get a card, uh, go to H-O-D-S. 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 That stands for Halachic Organ Donor Society. We'll and put the link in the show notes. Doesn't, and .org doesn't stand for organs. It stands for organization like 501c3. Oh, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> excellent. Thank you, Robbie Berman. Please go check out hods.org and uh, get a card if you can. Uh, please do. It's at the very least one can do um, for uh, the rest of the Jewish community. Thank you again, Robbie Berman. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, have many successes from this. Before we move on from this topic, we thought it'd be important, of course, to discuss this with somebody who's actually waiting for a donation. So on the line with us is Elena Solomon, who has been writing about the process on her blog, Elena's Journey, My Quest to Find a Kidney. Elena, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Why don't you uh, walk us through a little bit of uh, what you've been through and uh, where we stand right now? So just um, briefly, in 2006, I was diagnosed with a fairly rare condition. Um, at the time it was called Wegner's. They refer to it now as um, granulomatosis with polyangitis or GPA. Um, it's, it's an autoimmune uh, disorder. And for me, it affected my kidneys. So for a long time, I was stable. Um, my, kidney had, my kidneys had declined to about 10%, but we can live with that. Um, so I was you know, leading an active, my regular lifestyle. And then in, in, then what happened in 2019, they started to decline. So they measure it by what's called a GFR level and kind of the magic number is 15. If you go below 15, you're kind of end stage kidney disease and you're going into renal failure. So I'm below 15. I sit somewhere at about, um, I vary between 11 and 12. So, which means I need a kidney transplant in order to survive. Right. And, and then you started this blog. Can you tell us a bit about what inspired you to share your story publicly in that way? It was suggested because I, I was quite at the beginning um, optimistic because I had I have three brothers who readily came forward and wanted to be tested. Um, but unfortunately, all three were declined for different different reasons. I actually had a couple friends that um, came forward and also were again declined for, for medical reasons. Um, so actually it was my friends who were amazing, decided we need to kind of do this on a bigger scale and decided to use social media, which was suggested for us as, as well. Um, because there's only so much that you can do sending out emails to friends that keep, the issue is they keep going to the same people. Right. So we tried it to just go a little wider. Um, so and also I felt, you know, a lot of people were asking all the time, you know, how are you doing? And they wanted updates and things like that. And it was it was a little bit easier for me to kind of 
put everything down on paper um, and, and then just refer people to the blog if they wanted to know, kind of wanted to know my, my story. And it was also helpful for me, um, truth be told, writing it, you know, just putting it, putting it down and seeing it there and, um, and also just having it, having it recorded. Like for me, like on the written paper, having it on, you know, having it down, down there and, and being able to refer people to it. And it was also another way to kind of get it out there a little bit wider if mm-hmm. I had, if I had it that way. So I'm not quite sure, like, because for people in my situation who are looking for kidneys and I'm one of many, I'm one of hundreds, probably hundreds in, in no. Toronto, um, you know, in, you know, in like, even in, you know, in, in Canada, I can't speak for obviously in the States, but there's, there's many um, who are looking for a kidney. So it's just, we're all kind of looking for different ways to get our story out there. I do, I do sympathize and agree when I was 11, I myself needed a liver. Uh, and I remember them, they, they scoured across the country to find uh, a liver from Alberta, and then they shipped it across to Montreal where I received it. Uh, it's been 23 years now. So I, I do sympathize a lot with what you're going through right now in terms of the uncertainty. I'm just wondering sort of how you, what, what is your day-to-day life like now in terms of going through it, in terms of any of the struggles or anything that, that just keeps you optimistic on the outlook? So for, for me, I'm trying to kind of circumvent having to, thank God, I'm not at the point. I don't, even though my levels are very low, I don't have a lot of the symptoms that normally textbook come with, come with that level. So the only thing that I can do for me now is try to stay as healthy as I can so that when that person hopefully does come forward, I'm in a good position. There's one thing also, you also have to be, it's one thing having the donor, but you also have to be a good candidate because there's a lot of people who, you know, they might have a donor, but they're just not a candidate to receive a kidney. So I'm, I, I'm not on dialysis. I'm trying to kind of circumvent that by trying to get um, a donor prior, prior to. So the only thing that I can do for me um, to kind of do that is, you know, try to, to stay healthy by exercise and um and diet but um those are the only things everything else is kind of out of my out of my control and it can change on a dime and for me it would only be at this point because i'm not on dialysis i don't know if a lot of people know but in order to even receive a deceased kidney you have to be on dialysis and um it varies it can be from three to five years all the way up to you know more than 10 years really depending on your medical situation and your blood type. What sorts of uh, resources uh, have you seen or have you found within the Jewish community? Within the Jewish community, I only really know of one. And people always ask me, you know, well, can't you put your name on a list or isn't there a list? There's a lot of misconceptions around, you know, I even had a friend in from the state visiting um, the other day and she said, well, we have like a registry or something like that, but we don't really have anything like that. You do for deceased but not for living donors. And we don't really have that in Canada either, as far as I know, but there is an agency, a charitable organization that I am associated with called Renewal. Where they are good is that, I guess if someone did call in anonymously and they do have people on their list, they can refer them, I guess, to that person. But I think it's not like it's, um, I mean, I've been on the list for two years and I don't have a kidney from them. So I'm not quite sure. You can't really put all your kind of eggs in that basket. You still have, Mm -hmm. that's why I do the social media stuff as well. 
But if someone did come forward and reach out to renewal because they just want to altruistically wanted to donate a kidney, they would go through renewal. And I know renewal tries to do outreach as well. And where they are excellent is assisting the the donor along the journey. So essentially, it sounds like uh, from what I've known from a bit from renewal is they they do a lot of this assistance. They also, and the, the flip side of it is that they advocate and they do a lot of um, work within the community to talk about the fact that kidney donation is important, is an accepted and wonderful thing that one can do um, as a member of the community and that there isn't necessarily something wrong with it as a Jewish um, person. Have you ever received any pushback from within the community? about this? I, I mean, I, I hope not, but I, I, I always, you know, in, in what imagine the worst in terms of like people who are like, well, you know, you shouldn't be asking people for kidneys or, or things along those lines. I mean, I think we're pretty much at the point where everybody understands the value and the importance yeah. of kidney donation. For me personally, never, never. That's Everyone's awesome. been amazing, um, you know, and, and very supportive. And, you know, I find like people are wanting to share posts and they're sending heartfelt comments and things like that but it's just needing you know it's just always needing that one person to come to come forward is is there more work that can be done um within the larger canadian community in terms of educating and advocating for uh organ donation um are we are we behind uh, other countries are we ahead of other countries you know we like to think that we're a very nice population um but i keep hearing and again a lot of it is hearsay and you probably know more than i do um that uh, the organ donation lists are way more filled right now with people looking for organs than people willing or able to uh, to donate. A hundred percent. And and I totally agree with, with what you're saying as far as is just, um, I think it's changing a little bit as far as people being aware of um, kidney donors and things like that, but it's, 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 it's very slow. If we have anyone listening that's at the beginning of the journey that you're on and, and they're, they just found out that they need um, a kidney or, or another uh, part. What type of advice would you give um, someone who's at the beginning of their journey that you wish you had known when you started? I'm not quite sure. I think because initially what you're doing, and I, I'm part of different, different support groups and things like that. So listen to people who are at all different stages as well. And there are, I think that's actually one thing actually maybe I should point out is that most hospitals in the GTA and I'm sure across Canada, have different support networks available to where you can speak to other kidney people at the same stage where you are, or people who are a bit ahead of you so that you can learn from their experience kind of, you know, what dialysis is and the different kinds of dialysis should you have to go that route or mm -hmm. what are the different symptoms. So there's different, those, I think that is something someone should get hooked up with because it's a wealth of information that's just kind of there instead of just kind of reading the stuff and wondering, you can ask yeah, people that's wonderful. and they're amazing. And then I think it's just a matter of, you can't kind of sit back on your haunches and kind of think that people are going to come necessarily knocking at your door. I think you need to kind of get your story out there. And it's kind of a, sometimes a big pill to swallow for some people because it's very personal stuff that you have to say, I'm just going to get it out there 
because otherwise if people don't know my story, I'm just limiting the amount of people who would potentially come forward for me. Well, we have a wide enough listenership that uh, I hope and pray that uh, some one of our listeners would uh, come forward and uh, say, you know what, this is actually uh, hopefully worthwhile and something that they want to do. There are many, many testimonials uh, on the renewal side of people who have donated kidneys and uh, have talked about it. And uh, I highly encourage if you're even thinking about that to go check it out. Uh, We'll put a link to that in the show notes. We'll put a link to your blog in the show notes. Um, and uh, we wish you all the best and hopefully uh, we, we will be around and maybe we'll interview you uh, hopefully soon after your successful kidney transplant. And Fingers we'll have a happy ending to that. that. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Thanks so much for Thank you me. so much, Elena Solomon. You can find links to her blog and to the Halachic Organ Donor Society page in the show notes. You can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought about this. Our original word of wisdom this week comes from Rabbi Eric Grossman. Rabbi Grossman is the head of school at the Akiva School in Montreal. We have this curious story in the Parsha this week about Abraham buying a piece of real estate in Hebron. And it's curious, it's odd, because it was offered to him for free. And besides that, he'd also been living there in Hebron for many, many years, probably decades. He was even visited there by God himself and the angels. And in addition, God had promised that Hebron and the rest of the land of Israel would belong to his descendants. So why would he feel compelled to purchase it? And I think this story raises implicitly the question, what does it mean for something to belong to us? Abraham, I believe, is thinking, we have something that is given to us, something that we're connected to already, or something that's been promised, and yet we still have a nagging feeling that it's not really ours. And that's why Abraham purchases it, because the act of purchase, the act of buying something since ancient times until modern times, has always been a definitive way of making something ours. And the Torah seems to agree because no fewer than five times between our parsha and the end of Genesis, the Torah repeats the fact that Abraham bought this piece of land. In other words, it's really his. The irony is that the next time that Hebron appears in the Torah, it's when Moses sends out scouts to Hebron because it's now occupied by a people who clearly don't care that it belongs to the Jewish people, that it belongs to Abraham. It's occupied by a race of giants. They're there, and they're not giving it up. And in fact, the only way that it comes back into the hands of the Jewish people is because Joshua conquers it by force. The fact that it was owned by us is absolutely irrelevant and never gets mentioned again in the Tanakh. Interestingly enough, this drama replays itself in modern times. Over the last few centuries, Jews have bought pieces of land in Hebron, and there was actually a very fine Jewish community living in Hebron, Until in 1929, they were massacred and had to flee from their homes. In fact, that happened again in 1948 during the War of Independence. The residents in Hebron, the Jews who lived there, were also forced to flee. And when we returned to Hebron in 1967, after the Six-Day War, none less than the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that the Jews who had fled could not reclaim their land. The fact that they owned it, 
The fact that it was theirs legally made no difference. And so the history of Hebron tells us that there is really nothing that is ever truly ours in this world. It's almost as if we are trying to say to the earth, you belong to me. And the earth says back to us, no, but one day you will be mine. And I think in the end, the story of Hebron challenges us to ask of ourselves, can we really say of anything of ours on God's earth, this is mine. Shabbat Shalom. Now we get to the point in our program where we talk about Nachas. So before I begin my Nachas of the week, I actually want to do a big mea culpa to all my Alberta family and friends. Uh, I was so excited for my first episode last week when I introduced my white hat. I called it a Stenson hat. It's actually a Stetson hat. Um, I really hope I'm not in everyone's bad books here. Please, uh, please forgive me, Alberta family and friends. And actually, there is even a Jewish connection to this hat Alana, Avi, do you remember what the Jewish connection to the Stetson hat is? Aside from many Jews wear Stetsons? Uh, yeah, we can go with that itself. Um, Enlighten us. But I'm, no, I can't even remember, but I remember, that I, I did some research, I looked it up, but I remember, I remember, what was it, she said last, when we did the podcast last week, that there was a Jewish connection to the hat itself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, this is going to be like a five-piece segment no, of just like no. making up for all of this. You need to make things. a mea culpa to your mea culpa next week and tell us what the Jewish connection is. I, I looked, I couldn't find it. David, what's your nachas been this week? All right, so my nachas this week was, is for Limud, Ottawa. On the weekend, they put together an event for Irving Layton, his Jewish poems itself. Uh, Max Layton, his younger son, read some of his most famous poems. Uh, it was a really wonderful event to listen to and to talk about uh, one of the most famous Canadian Jewish poets of our time, I would say. In interestingly enough, uh, I'm also related to Irving Layton, his uh, what, did, what is it? I asked my father for our connection, and he said it was Irving Layton's. My great grandmother Esther was his sister. That's oh it. wow, that's not that far. It's off. not that far off. So thank you very much, uh, Lamoud Ottawa, for putting that event together. It was very special. Amazing. My uh, Irving Layton taught my father English, actually, and I own the thesaurus that Irving Layton gave to and inscribed for my father. Um, if so, I'm not mistaken, I also have an Irving Layton connection. Um, forgive me if I get this wrong, but I am pretty sure that my brother lives in Irving Layton's old apartment. In Cote His literal apartment. We hit the Layton trifecta on the uh, today's nachas. If I got that wrong, I apologize, and I will correct it next week. Excellent. Alana, what's your nachas been? So after moving quite a few times since I left Vancouver in August, I'm finally going to be moving into my long-term place for the 1st of November, and I'm going to be moving back into a Moisha house. I am reinserting myself. Is this the house of White Horse? Of White Horse? No. Oh. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going for. No. I'm Moisha Antigonish. hopping. Antigonish. Yep. Uh, Moisha house. Hamilton? Who knows? Um, no, I'm, I'm moving into one of the Toronto Moisha houses. There's actually four of them in the, t in the city, not the town, um, which is incredible and already without having moved in yet. I've been going to a lot of the events and it's amazing how many people are coming out. Uh, so it'll be great to put that hat back on and also not move again every single month. Yeah, that good for you. Thank you. Great nachas. What is yours? Um, I'm going to start just with a, a bit of an expansion, not really a correction. Um, when I spoke about last week's nachas, uh, Maimonides Nuts, uh, the artist uh, Sophia Zohar, uh, I did not realize that her Instagram is actually so 
like amazing. It's just like that's the main work where she's sending all this work out. She's putting up uh, great images, great drawings, great ideas. Um, really, really, really. I'm gonna double down on that one. So I want to correct it. It's not just a page with some, you know, an artist page with some prints and some mugs and you know masks and stuff. Um, her Instagram is amazing. Check it out, Maimonides Nuts. Um, but that's last week's. I wanna. I saw this story this week uh, that came across my radar, and I just had to talk about it because this is so Montreal and I loved my Nachas this week from Montreal or standing up for Montreal. So there's this Ottawa bagel shop called Kettleman's Bagels and uh, they're a chain. Apparently there are a few different branches of this Kettleman's Bagels in Ottawa. Uh, it Originally, to be fair, was started by a Montrealer, um, but they announced on Twitter that they were, you know, Ottawa-based bagel chain opening first Montreal location, right? Um, and all of a sudden, everybody in Montreal started piling on them, right? So Tourism Montreal wrote Ottawa-based bagel chain in quotes and then with a bunch of red flags, right? And then you have like, so, <laughs> right. It's going to be protests, I feel. Right. This is famous DJ Max Graham who goes, what, Vermont-based poutine is next, I guess? Right. Oh, um, my. I'm still a bagel snob, <laughs> like, even though I don't live in Montreal anymore, and I can't even eat the right. bagels. Kettleman's is setting snob. themselves up for failure the way that Smokes Poutinery did when they came to Montreal. It's just like, oh, I God. love, Ugh. you know, I, I, it's so great that um, Montrealers came to the defense of this and like, Ray, excuse me, like, what are you doing? Oh, and that's what's going so on? much. That is my nachos of the week is the city of Montreal <laughs> standing up for its bagels and saying to Ottawa bagels like, whoa. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> Can we go as far as to say is that it was plagiarism? They're trying to plagiarize. like It's like a bad replication of the Montreal bagel. Whoa, I tied it wow, all together. Amazing. That's actually interesting that. because there's no such thing as plagiarism with regards to recipes. Um, it's a big... Uh, point of contention when it comes to cookbooks and cookbook authors that you can't uh, copyright a recipe um, but plagiarism clearly you can rip somebody off and uh, yeah I don't know I all the power to them go make your bagels and I'm sure that they are very 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 good bagels but you cannot expect anything less than what happened when you go and you're a non-bagel non-Montreal bagel chain trying to come and break into Montreal um for you know selling bagels down my street interestingly enough there is a store that opened up recently called saint lawrence montreal bagels itself uh the guy apparently was originally one of the workers at the old um store in montreal and he came out to calgary and opened it up they are unfortunately not as good but if his i wonder if he's plagiar of course they're not but but he has the wood fire oven in the back of course they're not yeah yeah there's something like that in vancouver too the guy went and studied at saint Peter. He went and trained and then it's came back to Vancouver. And, and look, I keep kosher strictly, which means that I generally, or generally, I don't eat St. Vieter or Fairmount right. bagels um, because they're not certified. I don't think that they're trafe. I don't think there's anything potentially problematic with them. I'll be first to go out there and say that and make sure. Do not, whatever. Um, but I know that whatever bagels I'm having in Montreal because they're not of those two, are notably going to be even somewhat slightly inferior to what you're getting on St. Vieta or at Fairmount. I'd agree. Um, so, and I accept that and I say, okay. And to be fair, District Bagel, great bagels. Cote St. Luke Bagels in Montreal, amazing Bagel West bagels, is really good if you're ever in the West Island. But they're not certified kosher. Yeah, they are. I'm but pretty are. sure that they are. I'll have to check them out. Okay. All right. 
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, October 28th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the perks of subscribing, actually, is that we generally try and get it out to the subscribers earlier, and it only makes it up to the website usually by Friday morning. So if you like to get that bonjour high goodness piping hot and fresh out of the oven um, as early as possible, you should definitely subscribe. Please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 